Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Nine to Thrive HR. I'm your host, Jenna Filipkowski. Today, we're featuring the eighth of our podcast series with SAP Success Factors. Each of these podcasts features an expert in the field of HR, and we will explore some of the most pressing issues facing talent management today. Today, I'm excited to welcome our guest, Judith Williams, and she's going to share the latest thinking and recommendations for diversity and inclusion practices within organizations. Judith joined SAP in September of 2018 as the head of people sustainability, and she's the chief diversity and inclusion officer who leads both diversity and inclusion and business health programs at SAP. Previously, she ran an organization which consults with startups on embedding diversity and inclusion into the foundations of their organizational cultures. And prior to that, she was the global head of diversity for Dropbox and the diversity programs manager at Google. Judith, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm very happy to be here. And I like for the audience to get to know you. And I understand outside of all the work that you do, you also have a podcast for women who travel. Can you kind of explain how that got started and what you do? So the podcast is no longer active. We did about three episodes and then we weren't able to continue for various reasons, but it's called Crosscheck and All Call. And it's a podcast that's aimed at women business travelers. And my co-host and I were both women who'd done a lot of traveling for business and had a lot of insight, a lot of opinions, a lot of travel hacks. And so that's really what we talk about. And I do hope to revive it perhaps as an opportunity to interview business travelers all over the world. I still travel a lot for business, so I'm learning more and more every day. And I'm really excited and enthusiastic about travel. Yeah, I'm sure with all the work you do, you're getting a lot of tips and recommendations that you'd probably love to share with an audience. So that's great. And also related to the topic that we're covering today, diversity and inclusion, why is this important to you? And if you have a story to share with our audience for help them connect this and making it personally meaningful to you? So a lot of why I come to diversity and inclusion is because I, I really believe in expanding opportunity for as many people as possible. And I have a really strong commitment to equity. And I think this really comes from living in a world that isn't fair. I, I think that while intelligence is equally distributed among populations, opportunity is not. And that became really clear for me several years ago when I was still in graduate school I was learning to pole vault and so working with a boys track team in New York City, specifically the Bronx. And it was an area of New York City that was particularly poor. And many of the students there were on free or reduced lunch. And so I worked with boys who had a really different background than mine. And in the summertime, we would have cross country. And what the coach said was, we would go out and run the cross-country route together. And so I was a pacer for the boys to keep them from slacking off. And the coach, he was beyond his peak running days, so he could no longer keep up with the boys. And he would say to the boys, don't let that girl beat you. And I would look at him and try really hard to make sure that I beat at least some of those boys. And I could usually beat some of them. But after we would have practice, I would often go to a corner store that was very near to the place where, where we had worked out and I would buy myself a Gatorade or a power bar or, or something like that. And since there would be just about a half a dozen boys with me at that point, I would buy them something, whatever I got for myself, I would buy for the boys. And I was so overwhelmed with how happy and excited they were 
to get these power bar or this Gatorade. And one day I finally asked the coach and I said, why, why are they so excited? And he explained to me that because many of them were on free lunch during the school year, when they would go to school, they'd get breakfast and then they would get lunch. And in the summertime when we had cross country, it was only a half day. So these young men would only get breakfast and then they wouldn't get lunch. And the calculus that their families had made was that if their kids, their older kids were going to be set in school, they could make choices around the limited resources they had to either feed themselves so they could continue working or to feed their youngest children. And so these boys might not get any more calories for the day outside of breakfast or that Gatorade or that power bar that I bought them. And so they were really thankful. And and that was amazing to me. And it, it made me remember that when I was a kid, I would, I would, and the way that little kids complain, I'd be like, oh, I'm so hungry, or I'm so thirsty. And my grandfather would always say to me, you have never known hunger, and you have never known thirst, and may that always be so. And it just, you know, it reminded me of, of that idea, of, I really solidified that idea that you know, how, how hard is it to be successful when you're, you're worried about whether or not you're going to get enough calories for the day? That's not a capability issue. That's an unfairness issue. And I just think the work that I do is about how do we distribute opportunity more fairly? How do we make sure that as tech is this huge engine for wealth creation, that it's not accumulating wealth at the expense of, of, of people who have all of the intelligence but none of the opportunity? I love that. That's a great story. And they're, they're running, so they need these calories, they need these energy, and yet they're still showing up even without access to all the food and opportunity that others may have. Thanks for sharing that. That really helps. Oh, you're welcome. So let's talk to the people who are running DNI programs at their organizations or involved, and let's talk about it like big picture. How, if you're in an organization and you want to be more fair and inclusive and diverse, how do you build a successful DNI strategy and just going off that, where do you start? What tools and data would you use, say, if you're starting from, from square one? So if I'm starting from square one, the most important thing is to understand where I am. Because you have to start where you are, and you, you need to know what that means. So look at your available data sources, whatever those are. Even if you are using Excel spreadsheets to track employees, understand what's the data in that Excel, what's the data that's available in your applicant tracking system, the data that's available in your um, HR resource management system, whatever it is, to say how, what do we have in our company in terms of demographics? Usually most organizations will collect some gender data as they mature, they begin to collect data on ethnicity. If you're a global company, you're going to have some sense of the geographic distribution. You'll have age data. You'll have uh, you'll be able to then start to say, well, this is what we have in terms of a baseline. You want to be able to apply that same sort of lens to your applicant tracking so that you understand what's coming into our pool. So if I if I want to hire more women, but I have a population of only 10 to 15% women in my applicant pool, it's going to be really hard to change that. So oftentimes understanding what's coming in is really important if you're thinking about hiring. Then understanding what is the experience of employees. A lot of organizations do engagement surveys and you should be able to get some demographic differences some geographical differences and functional differences. So I'd say the first is understand what your data is so that you can get a benchmark. 
And the data also allows you to diagnose what your problems are. Are you having a sourcing problem in that your pipeline isn't diverse enough and you're not getting a wide variety of backgrounds? Or are you sourcing widely, but you find that your pass-through rates are different for different groups? The data allows you to diagnose that. Similarly, if you look at, you know, you can look at a snapshot in time of your demographics and say, this is what we have at each of the levels in our organization. But you also want to be able to look at that data more dynamically to understand what, what are the trends. So what, have, what were the demographics a year ago? What were the demographics you know, six months ago? To be able to see where you're trending. And I'd say always start with the data. Once you have the data, then you can make some decisions about where you want to invest and you can identify what your biggest hotspots are. And then you want to think about clear outcomes. So having some objectives that you will measure and that you'll have some accountability around. Absolutely. Data is so important to know where you are and where you're going and also to track back to make sure you achieved what you wanted to to see. But So I sit in research, and I know a lot of organizations aren't super savvy when it comes to collecting a lot of the metrics that you mentioned. Um, what if you don't have a lot of resources to be able to do this? So everybody's got the basic data. You might not have your applicant tracking data, but it's usually pretty easy to look around um, and, and look at look at your data and understand, for example, your gender split at different levels in the organization. Uh, it's usually um, a good place to start is to understand what you have. Um, so if you don't have robust data sets, I would say you want to start investing in getting better data quality, but then you can look around and say, what do you have? Um, if you are one of those organizations that's really fortunate and you, you have um, equity when it comes to gender split, well, then you can look around and say, well, what are some other challenges? And it's important to set targets and to say, wherever you are, you want to move. So if you want to have more gender diversity when it comes to leadership, then you need to um, set some clear benchmarks in terms of how you're going to move there. Um, you also need to, to think about how you're incentivizing your recruiters. Uh, recruiters often will provide the talent that leaders and managers ask for. And so if you want to have a more diverse pool, you need to communicate to recruiters about the importance of sourcing for diversity. And that's often a first step, saying, can we just look at more diverse candidates? And some organizations can be um, as progressive as to say, in fact, we don't want to hire for any of our key roles unless we've seen a diverse pipeline. That is one measure that can have a huge impact on the conversation about diversity because you force yourself to look at your pipeline and say, every time we make a decision and we don't look at diverse candidates or a diversity of candidates, we have to have a conversation about why. Yeah, absolutely. And What's working at SAP and what can you share with our audience to help them get better at diversity and inclusion? Well, one of the things that's been really successful at SAP is we've been involved in the EDGE assessment. SAP was the first tech company to get certified by EDGE, and EDGE is an external body that has detailed assessments across hiring, promotions, overall gender balance, career accelerators, flex work options. And we get those assessments, and then we're provided with action plans. And those action plans give us very specific instructions so that we can improve policies and practices. And although we're focused on improving the gender balance for women, all of those policies actually make the work life better for men and women. 
And then the, the lessons that we've learned from EDGE have been really helpful in thinking about how we apply that to some other demographics. Interesting. What else is working? Well, we're also taking a really close look at how we recruit and how we source candidates. We are looking at sourcing proactively to reach out to diverse audiences, so identifying different associations, different conferences, different memberships, and also different channels to bring people into the organization. That's great. And thinking about best practices and also some lessons learned, what are some things that our listeners might want to avoid when they're thinking about their DNI strategy? <laughs> so I'm going to say something that um, might be a little controversial, uh, which is I think uh, listeners should probably avoid unconscious bias training. I started at Google in 2013, and we were really excited about unconscious bias training, and we trained thousands, tens of thousands of employees on unconscious bias. And we really, I think, naively thought that that might have an impact or might be the first step to culture change. But it I think if you're not really careful, unconscious bias can become a check-the-box exercise. And what's really thorny and difficult about unconscious bias is that all the research about unconscious bias shows us that awareness of unconscious bias does not change our behavior. So our unconscious biases will still fire in those occasions when we are stressed out, when we're rushing, when we have limited information. Just the key decision points where we might exclude people from different backgrounds, hiring, promotion, giving really important assignments. So I would say if you are thinking about investing in an unconscious bias program, that those resources in terms of time and money might be better spent really taking a look at your culture and saying, what is the cultural change that we need to make? Now, if we're seeing that women aren't getting that initial promotion from individual contributor to manager, what can we do to change that as opposed to thinking about a scattershot unconscious bias approach, which is thinking about I can change hearts and minds rather than changing behaviors? I'm glad you said that because I think the research, like you said, doesn't always support that unconscious bias training. and It's not a, a Band-Aid or a fix, and it's not going to make people more fair, inclusive, and, and less... Um, racist overnight. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy fix. Um, and we also study things at HCI that mandatory training doesn't work, like forcing people to take any sort of training around diversity and inclusion won't improve the outcomes that you wish to see. So I'm wondering, beyond looking at your HR strategy and your talent management strategy, looking at things like recruiting and sourcing, what can you do to make your entire workforce maybe more open and accepting of different types of people? What have you seen work there? Well, I think if we want to change culture, we have to recognize that inclusion needs to involve everyone. And a lot of the conversation, it focuses on different demographics. So having a holistic view and being really clear about here's the value that inclusion provides to all employees. There is a researcher by the name of uh, Kenji Yoshino, and he, he's a law professor, but he's done some really interesting work on this idea of covering. And covering is that we sometimes hide parts of ourselves because we think that we won't be accepted at work. So there's some people who may cover parts of their appearance 
or their appearance. And one of the things that we hear that this applies to African-American women who might be uncomfortable wearing their natural hair and instead will straighten their women. So that's appearance coverings. We also hear about affiliation-based coverings. So these are individuals that might be veterans but feel uncomfortable talking about their veteran status at work because they think that affiliation uh, won't be respected. There are people who may cover the fact that they are parents and that they have really high childcare expectations, or they might feel like it's not safe to be religious in the workplace. So they cover the fact that they are very religious. And covering actually is a cost for us because that time that we could be spent fully productive in the workplace is covering part of who we are. Now, it's probably no surprise that people of color, that women, that people in the LGBTQ plus community are covering parts of who they are. But in a study that Deloitte ran, they found that over 60% of straight white men also reported covering at work. So having a conversation about this idea that all of us need to have an inclusive environment so we could be successful. I think that's a really important conversation to have, to invite everybody into the conversation to recognize that commonality. I think that the other thing is to, to be really practical and say, hey, we understand that most of us have good intent. And so what we want to do is we want to give you the tools to act on those good intentions. Um, so I would say bringing everyone into the conversation and being really concrete, like helping managers to understand that although we all have go-to people, and I am certainly guilty of this as a manager as well, step back and say, who haven't I given a really exciting opportunity to on my team lately? And is that person different from some of the people that I tend to naturally give the really exciting opportunities? And this happens even before any official performance review process or promotion process. It's just that day-to-day -day assignment of, wow, I got something high priority on my desk. I need someone on the team to accomplish it. I'm going to think differently about my talent. Because that person who wasn't my go-to person, by giving them that opportunity, I develop that person. I make all of my talent better because I spread that opportunity. So those are a couple of things to think about. Yeah, I love that. It's very simple in a way. It's just pausing and thinking about who else needs access to opportunities and how can we get access to more ideas and talent through just being more inclusive with our culture. It doesn't have to be something a large-scale rollout of something. It could just be the simple decisions that managers make every day. Yeah. How do we empower managers to make better decisions? How do we give them the tools to make better decisions? And how do we recognize that managers are balancing so many different constituencies and needs and deadlines and objectives? So we need to be sensitive to that and work with them the way that they work. Exactly. So you started in this role at SAP this year. Where are you going to take DNI going forward? So I, when I think about where DNI can go, I think it's really important that we have a global focus. And when I say a global focus, that doesn't mean that everything globally is the same, but we need to have a global vision to understand that diversity and inclusion is relevant to everyone and in every geography and have some values around that. I think that's really essential we also need to think about using data. For me, data is really important, not only in terms of how we direct our resources, but how we validate the interventions that we choose. 
need to think about making some long-term investments. How can we think about the pipeline long-term? And when we think about the pipeline, it's, it's not just how do we bring people into the organization. It's also how do we ensure that they develop, that they grow, that they stay with us, and that we think organizationally about professional lives are changing and what people want out of their careers are changing. And the organizations that are going to be most agile and adept at adapting to the reality of the way that people want to live their professional lives is going to be important, and inclusion is part of that. It's really important that we drive the ownership for inclusion down into the organization so it's not seen as these are some HR programs or these are some diversity programs that are a tax on our resources. We need to think about how they're integrated in the way the business thinks about itself. And to that end, structural solutions are more important than anything else. It seems to me that we spend a lot of time in diversity inclusion on a hearts and minds approach where we try to convince people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. I think we need to change our processes and our organizational structures so it's harder to do the non-inclusive things than it is to do the inclusive things. I think technology is going to be huge in the way that it helps us. If we think about the way that, that data and machine learning are infiltrating all of our lives, we need to think about what are the nudges that we can create so we make it seamless for managers to make an inclusive choice, uh, that we make it easy, that we make it almost intuitive. So those are some of the things that, that I see coming on the horizon and that I would like to drive at SAP. I love that. I w- could you just give our listeners a brief example of what you mean by the structural solutions and how it make it harder to do the non-inclusive thing? I think it's a great idea. Sure. So one of the really fun parts of my role since I started SAP is I have been brought into some of the conversations that our SAPIO accelerator program has. So some of their selection committee meetings so that we can select some of these startups that are in the the B2B space. And one particular startup, it gives managers a view of how they communicate with their team. And so it lets managers know how frequently you email people, how many times you meet with people, the content or the types of interactions that you're having. So you can get a dashboard that would let you know how you're communicating. The next step is there's a nudge that says, hey, there's this person on your team that you've only communicated with once this week, whereas you've communicated with all these other people five times as much need to have this type of interaction with this person. So it's nudging you to change your behavior. It's making it easy. It's reminding you of the kind of data that just passes in the background because we have this natural inclination to favor some people over others. We don't do it intentionally. That's in the area of our unconscious biases. So this technology, it, it actually lets you know how you're communicating with your team and it can nudge you and remind you to equally distribute your time because that's a huge thing as a manager. So that's one example of a technology that's creating a kind of structural difference at that team level. I love that. And it's also making it easier for managers to, to stop and think and make better decisions regarding their teams. That's great. Well, that's all we have time for. So thanks so much for being here, Judith. I know I learned a lot from you and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you. And listeners, be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you enjoyed today's episode. You can find HCI on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and on the YouTube channel, HCI Talent. If you're listening on iTunes, we'd love to get your rating and review. It helps other professionals discover the program. 
I'd like to close by saying thank you to all our listeners for spending some time with us. From all of us at HCI, thanks for listening.